Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of the Medici Effect by Franz Johansson. What elephants and epidemics teach us about innovation. Big Franz. We had him on the podcast, what, four, four and a half years ago? His first, uh, well, his, his second book, it was our first book, The Click Moment. I think he did the Medici Effect first. Yes, he's, uh, we really like the click moment and same with this book, Medici Effect, it brings together a whole bunch of other ideas from other books into one which is uh, highly powerful and kind of demonstrates what he's talking about, which is the Medici Effect. Yeah, there you go. And I think this book's about 20 years old as well, so I reckon at the time it would have been extremely innovative and we're talking about innovation here and let's start in Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. We've got a bloke named uh, Mick Pierce. He was an architect. He was pretty keen on ecology on the side as well. And he was given this mammoth challenge, old mutual, uh, massive insurance and real estate conglomerate. They wanted a new office building. They wanted a, an attractive functioning office. And they said, we want no air conditioning, which is a big challenge in Zimbabwe because it gets bloody hot. It does. And you know, this, uh, I guess this is probably where the genesis of some of these ideas started. But definitely back then, this was an outrageous idea. So for Big Mick, he was born in Zimbabwe, he was schooled in South Africa and trained as an architect in London and he was up for this wild challenge. And kind of what's even weirder than just this uh, well-trained architect finding this architectural solution was the way that he found the solution wasn't through architecture but actually through his kind of side interest in bugs, which was a, a bit strange because what he did was he designed this building and this cooling system based on how termites cool their own tower-like mounds of mud and dirt because obviously the termites, they don't have air conditioning, so they found a natural way and he took that principle and made a natural way of cooling the building in Zimbabwe. So termites through evolution, they've figured a way out how to solve this uh, interesting problem. So they keep their mounds at 87 degrees Fahrenheit. means nothing to me, Fahrenheit. What's that in degrees Celsius, Ash? I also couldn't tell you. 87. It's probably around, uh, I don't know, low 20s. I'll take a stab. Let's go 21.5 and let's see what Google says. 30.5 degrees. Oh, off. <laughs> it's still pretty hot for the old termites, but I guess uh, it's, you know, it used the same theory anyway, but in a roundabout way, termites get the temperature constant inside and this is what he was looking to do with his, his, his uh, office building. Yeah, that's right. On the African plains, it can range from as hot as 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the middle of the day down to as cool as 40 degrees in the middle of the night and the termites at all times of day or night are keeping their mound at 87. So, it's pretty ingenious from these little termites. And what they do is they direct different breezes of air at the base uh, and they hit the chamber with cool, wet mud and then that redirects the cooled air up to the top of the mound and sort of keeps circulating around. And what they do is they open up new holes in the tower and close up old ones. And this constant opening and closing of different holes and adding of new cool wet mud regulates the temperature extremely precisely. So Mick didn't get these ideas in his second year undergraduate class in architecture. He got these ideas from natural ecosystems that he was interested in and specifically how these two fields intersected. And because of all this, the innovations he found ended up with a huge saving. So it uses less than 10% of the energy consumed of other buildings of its size. So that's a freaking insane saving, 90% <laughs> saving. Um, so it's what, a 10x innovation, which a lot of people are always searching for. And this is what he found. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So they saved three and a half mil straight up by not having to install an air conditioning plant. Plus, every single year, they're saving 90% on their electricity bill. And big old Mick, he's become a bit of a case study as a groundbreaking innovator in architecture worldwide. And everyone's just trying to think, you know, how can we be like Mick? So how did the Pierce man come up with such an innovative design? 
Some might say it's a little bit of luck, but probably not. The more interesting question is to consider how how what he specifically did uh, affected his chances of finding a breakthrough and even creating his own luck. Yeah, what he did is what Franz calls the intersection. Mick Pierce, he stepped into the intersection, which is combining the ideas of architecture with the process of sort of the natural world that he found through his other areas of interest. And he found the intersection between those two. He was willing to explore seemingly unrelated areas and create these new and weird combinations that make it much more likely for him to successfully break new ground. And it's this intersection where is really the hitting zone of new ideas and creativity. And this is what this book and this episode is going to be all about. So the idea behind this book is pretty simple. Uh, When you step into a new intersection of fields and disciplines and you're combining different things, you're going to end up with the ability to generate a large number of extraordinary new ideas. And Franz, the man, he's given the name to this called the Medici Effect. Yeah, the reason he calls it the Medici Effect, named after the famous Medici family in Italy in the 15th century, they were in Florence, they brought together and they funded, they're a banking family and they funded a wide range of different creative disciplines. They brought all these weird and wonderful artists and creators from all over the world and brought them all to Florence in Italy. They brought together sculptors, scientists, poets, philosophers, financiers, painters and architects and they put them all in the same place at the same time. They kind of all bumped into each other and they all sort of started combining the their different ideas and finding the intersection between all these different fields and what that did, that, that sparked the Renaissance. That certainly did, and it was the epicenter of a creative explosion where uh, what happens back in the, the Florence family and the Medici times and back then, uh, it can happen to us as well. We can have our own creative explosion if we do the certain right things that the France outlines in the book. So this book, it's not really about the Medicis or the Renaissance era. It's not really about termites or it's not about architecture, but it's about the elements that made all those things possible and how we can use those same elements too to make our own lives more creative and more innovative. In January 1995, the executive chef at the Swedish restaurant in New York City named Aquavit unexpectedly died of a heart attack. Now, the owner quickly needed to find someone to be the head chef of the kitchen and he turned to a brand new hire named Marcus Samuelson. It was a massive decision at the time because he was kind of risking his entire restaurant and his entire reputation on this 24-year-old kid with with not a whole lot of uh, professional background. But in retrospect, it might have been the best decision that he ever made. It's pretty nerve-wracking at the start because Aquavit had a great reputation for the food it created. But when Samuelson came in, he must have been a bit of a maverick because new dishes started appearing all over the menu. And they were food you really haven't seen before. They were unique combinations from all over the world. Things like oysters with mango curry sorbet. That sounds bizarre. It sounds made up. That sounds disgusting to me. <laughs> but might be each of their own. They didn't always make sense to the brain, but they tickled the imagination of the palate and they were unlike anything that you'd ever tasted before. I mean, it's food like that where if you go to a fine dining restaurant, they're going to charge bloody... <laughs> charge a shitload, yeah. One of those soda restaurants and then you go and get a kebab on the way out <laughs> after spending 200 bucks. <laughs> True story to some bucks. Like, don't bring me here. Anyway. Well, it kind of worked out pretty well. It sounds bizarre. But since then, Samuelson, he became known as one of America's leading chefs in the late 90s. Uh, he was featured on Forbes, in gourmet magazines. He was on TV. He was on the Discovery Channel. He was on CNN. Uh, his cookbook was uh, voted the best in North America for the decade. Uh, and he even was recognized the World Economic Forum at Davos as one of the global leaders of tomorrow. 
Yeah, so not bad for a chef oh. to be called a global leader of tomorrow. When all you do is just cooking oysters with mango curry sorbet. <laughs> I'm sure the yeah you know, the food industry there's a bit more to it. I think, but what's behind Marcus's wild uh, success? So what are the reasons? And uh, there's seriously something special about the food he makes. Like you can call it a bit a bit of Swedish. And that's what it says on the menu. It's a bit of Swedish going on here. Uh, so some ingredients like lingonberry and salmon is where the Swedish comes from. But you also see foods that aren't so Swedish, like caramelized lobster with uh, seaweed pasta, sea urchin sausage, and cauliflower sauce. Whoa. Another one here, salmon plate, gravelax and tandoori smoked salmon, espresso mustard sauce, Oof. and dill foam. It just sounds expensive, doesn't it? It does. It just sounds expensive. The third one <laughs> might tickle my fancy a bit more. Chocolate, ganache, bell pepper, oh, maybe not actually, bell, <laughs> yeah. bell pepper and raspberry sorbet with lemongrass yogurt. The chocolate bit sounds good. I don't know about the Yeah, um, I saw the chocolate and sorbet. Then, yeah. <laughs> but like these things are all like a little bit odd. Like tandoori spices don't normally go with salmon. Uh, and he was, he was, and you know, obviously chocolate doesn't often go with bell peppers or lemongrass. Uh, but Samuelson, he was daring to take these risks and put them out on the menu. I'd probably start with maybe as a special one day and see how it took off, but he would put it straight up on the menu. He was taking the Swedish culinary building blocks like seafood, game, a couple of uh, preservation techniques and fresh ingredients. But then he also added the ingredients from all over the world to combine them into these unique and stellar adventurous tastes and flavors. That's it. And it's all about the combinations that were original and super playful and wonderful. And this is how he broke down the traditional barriers in cooking and found his innovations in his industry. Because he found himself at the intersection of Swedish food and all the other global tastes from around the world. So, how did he do it? It turns out that Samuelson has uh, what Franz is calling low associative barriers. So, psychologists have an explanation for what happens during the thinking process. They say that our mind works through a series of chains of association. We hear a, a word, we see an image, and these whole string of associations are triggered. And generally, our brain takes the easiest path. We follow these chains of association to get to an endpoint. We've sort of put a barrier up either side of that. So, we've got a nice, smooth transition for our brain to follow. But what he's saying is that Samuelson and other innovators like him, they've got these low barriers. They, they, their brain starts to head down these associative chains, but they, they easily break out of the traditional thinking methods. Yeah, our minds follow the simplest path. So, it's for 99.9% of the population, when you hear something like... Uh, Something like salmon, you know, those who are um, schooled traditionally with, with salmon, you might think, oh, yes, smoked maybe with vegetables and rice. But for his brain, his barriers go in pretty wild tangents, which our brains would never land on. So, he lands on something like espresso mustard and dill foam. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, it's the associative barriers where his brain takes the simplest paths that is the different thing that allows him to find the innovations here. So, researchers have long suspected that these associative barriers are the responsible for what inhibits us from being creative. So, how can we also reduce our own associative barriers? So, we, we all follow our own chains and we kind of get trapped within these barriers, but the only way to innovate really is to break out of the traditional thinking systems and lower our barriers. Now, one way to do that is to expose yourself to a, a wide range of cultures. So, cultures are generally defined by certain rules and traditions that you just think are normal that maybe other people think might be a little weird. It's by experiencing a whole bunch of different cultures, by learning different rules, different associations, different traditions, different ways of thinking that you can then break out of your own one single track mind. So, Marcus Samuelson, our Swedish chef, 
he didn't have your traditional Swedish upbringing. He was actually born in Ethiopia. Uh, he was orphaned with both his parents, died at the start, and then a young couple uh, from Sweden adopted him. His adoptive father was a geologist, and because of that, he was lucky to see different parts of the world throughout his whole childhood. And then probably the big one is at the age of 16, when he started working as a chef, he did so on a cruise boat. And the cruise boat, of course, traveled to all the different parts of the world, and he got to eat and cook at all the major ports around the world and, and dabble with all these different experiences. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. That obviously, if you're on this cruise ship, you, you head to Thailand, the staff are going to go off and get some fresh ingredients from the market. Then a couple of days later, you end up in India. A couple of days later, you find yourself in Morocco. Then you find yourself across the other side of the world in Brazil. Every time you go into a new place, you're cooking with new foods, new ingredients, and you're going to have to find all sorts of new and different combinations. And also, when you look at Aquavit, that famous uh, Swedish restaurant that Salmisen cooks out in New York City, they've got around 100 staff comprised of 40 different nationalities. So, it's really no surprise that they've become known as this famous culinary institution. So, different cultures is a, is a good one because you can just tell yourself you're being very productive when you're just blowing a lot of cash <laughs> traveling overseas uh, when things open up again. So, yeah, if you go overseas, it's uh, you're really tapping into the Medici effect, which is a good thing. Now, a second one is learning differently. So, traditional education, so doing your the normal path like everyone else is, getting your commodified skill set, whatever it might be. It's not necessarily a bad thing. There are things that you need to learn on your path to, to doing anything like a man, Samuelson, probably had to uh, get some sort of apprenticeship in the kitchen before he was able to innovate and we're building a base of our, our skill set to create from. So, one way to counteract this, it's pro- we're not going to go and say if you've uh, gone to high school that you've already screwed up and we're not going to say if you're a parent of a, of a 12-year-old, just pull them out of school. Uh, because there is definitely a place for traditional education, but you also need to learn as many different things as possible without getting stuck in any one particular way of thinking about those things. There's a few famous examples of people who went the the self-education path. Obviously, Steve Jobs famously didn't finish college, so he dropped out and he spent a lot of his time reading, drawing, experimenting without the guidance of instructors or experts. You got Thomas Edison, one of the greatest inventors of all time. He was just basically all he did was reading. He was reading books about chemistry, books about electricity. So it wasn't really learning in a traditional education sense. It was more of a you might call it a non-formal education, Jonesy. Mm, yeah, <laughs> good throw there. But we just started hit number one bestseller, didn't we? On the, <laughs> on the non-formal education, it's a it's a that's a big category, non-formal education. It's a huge category out of the thousands of categories. Oh, let's not go there. Number one bestseller. Let's claim it. And then we'll, we'll round out with also Charles Darwin. He was a below average school student, so much so that he, he was really a, a, a nothing. His, his father was always hanging shit on him because he didn't have any interest in traditional schooling. Whatever he tried, he kind of failed at. And it wasn't until he went on that, that famous boat on that the HMS Beagle, his five-year round-the-world trip, that he started combining his weird interests in geology and obviously became one of the most famous scientists of all time with his discoveries. Yeah, Steve Jobs comes up in every book, but he is, <laughs> he is always like such a good example. Especially, isn't he? especially a book about innovation. You can't oh. write a book about innovation without mentioning... Well, because Jobs was exactly like the, the intersection of calligraphy, his classes, plus his Eastern mysticism, which inspired his like um, obsession with design... And then engineering. So, you, you did come into the intersection of all these places and your IBMs and all, all the square engineering, They uh, their design-wise were totally different to what he came up with. That's right. So, if we want to be breaking down our associative barriers, if we want to be breaking out of some of those normal chains, obviously, we've got exposing yourself to a range of cultures. Mushies. 
You can take Marshy's like Steve Jobs. <laughs> That's one way, yeah. You can have learning differently. And then the third way is to reverse your assumptions. So, obviously, the first two strategies, you know, exposure to cultures and, and learning, they kind of happened in the past and you, you can keep doing those. But the thing you can do something straight away right now is to reverse your assumptions. It's kind of a way of forcing you to break down those associative barriers because you, you take your assumptions, which is your, your brain's normal way of thinking, and then you try and flip it on its head. So, think of a situation, a product, a concept, whatever you're trying to launch that you're facing, write down all the first principles, assumptions about the situation, then just reverse these and just write the opposite. And then finally, think about what makes those reversals meaningful. Let's say if you've got a launching a restaurant. Um, so, restaurants, so firstly, laying out the assumptions, restaurants have menus, they charge money for food, and they serve food. Yeah, that's pretty basic assumptions of any restaurant. If we reverse those assumptions, okay, well, restaurants have no menu or restaurants do not charge money for food and restaurants do not serve food. Like kind of just reversing them on their own doesn't really mean a lot. The important thing we need to do is how do these things become meaningful? So if restaurants have no menus, um, a few different things you could do is like the chef could inform each customer what they brought fresh at the market that day and of the presented list of options of meat, fish and vegetables, the diner chooses the things they don't like or whatever. And then the chef makes a special dish. So I guess they're losing their diversity of selection, but at the same time, they're getting what's fresh from the market and the chef's making the, the calls here. That's right. Or say the assumption of charging money for food, instead of that, you could charge money for time. So perhaps you might have a cafe, which really is a, a space. You have this awesome space where people can get together and talk. You might have some, some free food and drink that they can tap into, but the bill isn't based on the food they eat. The bill is based on the time that they spend rather than what's consumed. That's pretty innovative. The third one is like, so restaurants that do not serve food. Like, what kind of bloody restaurant <laughs> is a restaurant serve anymore? Food? Yeah. <laughs> so if you really take that next level of thought, then you think, all right, maybe the restaurant creates a beautiful environment to be in with cool experiences and cool music. People bring in their own food and they pay a service charge to eat their own food in this cool location with music and whatnot. I mean, that's pretty cool. I think all three of these are wonderful ideas for new restaurants. Yeah, they are. They're obviously very, very innovative. It doesn't mean that reversing your assumptions you have to do any of those these things but it, you've definitely just by this short five minute sort of process you've broken yourself out of these these forced you know traps where you think a restaurant has to have a menu i'm just going to throw one at you ash jay oh, uh, writing a book well i guess it has to have uh a title it has to have a front cover it has to have uh chapters <laughs> yeah. anything we can reverse there nah i think there's one there's de- you can definitely reverse a it doesn't have to have chapters. There's something different you could you could create with that. Well, I guess you could have no title. You could have no title, yeah. And then it's called no title maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe words, like you get rid of zero words in the whole book. Yeah. Just photos and colors. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a good one. Uh, well, obvi- an obvious one, a book that we did way at the very start, the assumption that a book has to be read, you know, left to right. It's, it's uh, straight up and down. You open it up. Um, you know, reading from left to right, whereas this one, uh, chapter one, way back in the first half of season one, he actually flipped it 90 degrees so that he actually flipped it open and read from top to bottom. That's that's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. He must have read this and he was definitely at the intersection. <laughs> so, um, you know, in summary, the intersection is where it's all at. If you want to create ideas um, and the three ways you can do it. Cultures, go travel and learn and double in different cultures if you're in university right now. Go on exchange and learn from from different cultures there or if you work for an international company, 
find a way to get overseas because this is going to spark your ability to be innovative. Secondly, learn different things, combine different concepts and theories and areas of education and in the intersection there is where the bangers happen. And finally, as we were saying, reverse your assumptions and through that you can find your explosion of ideas. In 1991, a young PhD math student named Richard Garfield went to pitch a new idea to the president of a games company. His game he came up with was called Robo Rally. Now, the president, Pete, he said, look, come back with something less complicated. This is pretty shit. <laughs> he wanted something quick to play, portable and inexpensive to produce. Garfield went back to the drawing board and who would have thought? Because he came back with something that was going to revolutionize the whole entire world of games. Yeah, what he came back with after uh, after a bit of tinkering, trying to find something a, a little bit more simple than Robo Rally, was he found a game called Magic the Gathering, and it became a card game like any other. The first year it launched in 1993, they made about 200 grand off it, which is not too bad for a seven-person startup. The next year, 1994, they made over $40 million in the second year, which is a pretty serious startup. That's pretty serious <laughs> cash, eh? And then in 1995, they sold 500 million cards. So, that's a shitload of cards getting out there in, into the world, which is massive. Within a decade of launching, they'd created this gaming epidemic. There were more than 6,000 Magic the Gathering players across 50 countries, and they actually had 100,000 professionally sanctioned tournaments around the world every single year. But geez, Richard, he came a long way, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Getting told he's, he sucks to, to do yeah. on that. Well, well done, massive. Richard. It was a smash hit and effectively launched an entirely new genre. And the company owns the game. They also went to get a patent called Collectible Card Games. And that was the new genre, Collectible Card Games. Of course, Pokemon somehow tapped yeah. into that later down the track. Well, they had they, the same company. They, they bought the, the, the rights to Pokemon and made the, the collectible card game of Pokemon. Is that and, right? Yeah, obviously, that was, that was massive. Um, so, it was so addictive that some religious groups actually denounced Pokemon as evil because they thought kids were just spending way too much time playing Pokemon cards, which is pretty incredible. So, the big revelation that made Magic different from virtually every other generic game around the world is that not all the cards had to be the same for every single player. So, at the start of the game, the cards you begin with are those you've got from your own personal collection. If you think about other games like chess and checkers, you always start entirely equal. In this start, you know, someone, well, I know Pokemon well, they might pull out the golden Charizard or the Mew or Mewtwo <laughs> um, and you just pull out your little, what is it like, uh, what's it, Squirtle. <laughs> and you're like, fuck, <laughs> we've got no hope here. <laughs> it's not 50-50 Squirtle against Charizard, is it? Actually, water beats fine. Yeah. <laughs> Weak example, but yeah. Well, it's kind of like, imagine poker. So, you're playing poker, You got everybody starts with the same well, you know, you know what the cards are. There's only 52 cards. There's only four suits. You can't just like all of a sudden someone whips out a, a royal flush of their magic ovals because hmm. just, it just couldn't happen. But in Magic the Gathering, there's so many different cards and you can collect as many different cards as you want and then you start a game with your own, your own 60 cards based out of your collection. And the reason is like there's some massive cards, say like the Juggernaut Monster, one time, you've never seen it before, someone whips out a juggernaut and you think, holy shit, I need to get myself a juggernaut. That seems like an awesome card. You're going to have to go out hunting. You're going to either have to buy a shitload of new decks, which is obviously good for the for the company because the juggernaut's so rare, or maybe you jump online, try to trade, maybe you try to buy, maybe you sell some of your other cards. And so, it becomes this collectible game as well, trying to find the best combination of different cards. So, that's where the intersection is. So, it's where uh, collectibles meets gaming because in the collectibles world, you've got the you know, people going out there buying and selling and trading the baseball cards or the AFL cards or stamps or whatever they might be. 
but they don't really do anything. They just sit there on your shelf. But all of a sudden, you get put them to use when you can kick your friend's ass at the, at the game you play because uh, your collectibles all of a sudden can be used in a game. I mean, it's pretty... A, might be a normal thing here, but this was really the first thing that revolutionized this whole new genre. And of course, spread like a virus and uh, Big Rich, he got to drive home a Lambo and put his <laughs> finger up to his old boss who said he sucked. That's right. So before the, the first part, we were talking about breaking down our associative barriers, which was we were talking about being more open to random combinations and different concepts from different fields. Now what we're talking about here is combining those. Once you've sort of broken down the barriers and found some different random things, now you want to combine them and put them together. That's how we can really step into the intersection. One way we can step into the intersection is through diversifying occupations. As an example, if you think of one of the prevailing mysteries of the past century, it was what the hell caused the distinction of the dinosaurs, right? We see these big bones and there's also obviously these big beasts. Where the hell did they all go? There's a whole bunch of theories out there from, from different dinosaur people that said, oh, maybe it was like a, a virus, like maybe they all got hay fever and that wiped them all out. Or maybe there were just sort of other mammals that sort of rose up and, and took all their food, so they just outcompeted them, so they eventually died off. Or maybe they just got too big that their, their bones couldn't support them anymore, their, their bodies couldn't be supported anymore, so they all died. These are all the theories that the normal din- what are dinosaur people, paleontologists? Yeah, the people do. So that's what all the paleontologists. That's what they were saying because they were just kind of stuck in their own field. Then comes along a guy named Louis Alvarez, who was an astronomer. Uh, he ended up winning the Nobel Prize, and because he came in, he switched over from the field of astronomy into the field of paleontology. He was able to bring some of those ideas and combine them. So he came up with the idea that, well, maybe it was an asteroid that came and hit Earth. He says, well, asteroids have hit Earth before. Maybe we just got this massive asteroid that came and hit Earth and, and screwed up all the dinosaurs. Yeah, the other scientists simply had never thought of it because they were too stuck in their own industry and they're just focusing on just what's happening within their field. So, it takes someone with a different uh, occupation to come in. Uh, I know there's an engineering firm in Australia actually called TTW and the first time I came across their team, they hired a physicist and a biologist. I'm like, what a waste of bloody money. (laughs) What a waste of bloody money. But it turns out, of course, they've probably read the Medici effect or something because these two occupations that they come in and really change the way they do computational design and bringing these different ideas in and changing what structural engineering really is. So, yeah, hats off there to you them. There you go. There you go. So, traditionally, most big companies, they're just on the hunt for the top talent. They want the best talent. They want the, the top performing people in their field. Once they find those top performing people in that field, they funnel them deeper and deeper into these narrow focuses and ultra ultra specific specializations they move you know every time someone excels they move them up a chain in the ladder and they just get deeper and deeper and deeper but that can obviously get you stuck into that one way of thinking if your goal is to just you know make incremental improvements on your same ideas then ultra specialization is the way to go but if your goal is to come up with something completely different and innovative then you you want to be breaking out of those chains you want to be bringing people from different areas together to combine their different concepts so you got different um, diversity in terms of skill sets and experiences of people professionally, but of course, you could also apply the same thing for diversity in terms of um, gender or cultural backgrounds and whatnot. If you think about architects, I think uh, if you go for a, a whiz um, at, a, at a rock concert or something, and you see how quickly it is for the blokes to go in and out of the bathroom compared to some uh, the women's toilet you could argue that maybe a few you know female architects weren't there when they were designing the actual size of the bathrooms at the time but uh yeah so having diverse groups of people will bring all the different ideas into the 
around the table to come up with the best creative ideas. Nobel Prize winner Linus Paulding, he once said that the best way to get a good idea is to have a lot of ideas. So when you're looking at the defining characteristics of successful innovators, the one thing that holds true is that the most successful innovators produce a whole bunch of different ideas. It means they're going to have a lot of shit ideas, but every so often they're going to have that one genius innovation. 10% of the creators out there are responsible for 50% of the creations. Don't know who came up with that, <laughs> that stat, but let's take him for his word. But there are a few examples to back this up. Your man, Pablo Picasso, he created 20,000 pieces of art. Let's uh, do the math on that. It's like one a bloody day almost. Einstein, he wrote more than 240 scientific papers. Edison filed over 1,000 patents for new inventions. Prince, apparently he wrote 1,000 plus songs in his secret vault that he never released to the public. And Branson, he started over 250 companies. So huge quantities we're talking about here from some of the best creators in history. Yeah, so when you step into the intersection, uh, you're going to get different ideas, but you're also going to get a massive number of ideas. Uh, One example is Mike Oldfield, who was Richard Branson's first major success at Virgin Records. He burst onto the scene with this weird combination of rock music plus classical music. Kind of listened to it the other day. I don't really understand what it is or why it was so popular, but at the time it captivated the the music world. But what actually happened? It wasn't just that one day he had this genius inspiration and he just made this you know song that went gangbusters. He actually did two thousand three hundred different recordings for that one song. He mixed and matched different instruments. He moved around different parts until finally he had that one version, which became this overnight success innovation. A lot of tinkering. Edison, he uh, he obviously an innovator. He put a quote on himself. He said that to have an idea for one minor invention every 10 days and one major invention every six months. In order to do that, he had uh, 9,000 experiments to develop the light bulb and over 50,000 experiments for his storage fuel cells. So that's a lot of trial and error. There you go. If you want to be an innovator, you want to be going for quantity and eventually you'll find the quality. So we need to step into the intersection. We need to create our own Medici effect. The future lies at the intersection, so we need to find our way there. We need to expect the unexpected because the logic of the intersection, it's not obvious, and we're going to have to try a whole bunch of different stuff until we find something that works. 